We're um, kicking off a new series here at Big Valley Grace called The Last Seven Words, where we're going to be looking at the last seven things that Jesus said when he was hanging on the cross. He knew he was dying. Jesus knew that these were his last words. These were his last thoughts. If you knew you were dying, if you knew you had 10 minutes, 20 minutes to live, and, and you were in pain, but when Jesus was hanging on that cross, it was just hard to breathe. It was just a lot of pain. But to talk just made it even more painful. Imagine you're in pain. You're dying. You've got your, your family around you, maybe your best friends. Probably those are going to be important last words, right? Probably not going to tell a joke. Probably those are going to be some, some significant, weighty words. Well, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was dying, and he knew he was dying. He's in agony, and in the midst of all of that, he makes these seven statements, these seven words, if you were. It says this in Luke chapter 23. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. It's in your notes. It'll be on the, the jumbotrons. When they came to the place called the skull, the soldiers crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. This is the, the first word from the cross. This is the very first thing that Jesus says when he's hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them goes on and says that the crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah. Let him save himself if he really is the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened to a cross or to the cross above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Beloved, Jesus had no intention of saving himself that day because that's not what he came to do. He didn't, came, he didn't come to, to, to save himself. He came to save a guy by the name of Rick Countryman. So no matter how much these people taunted him, hey, if you're the son of God, get off the cross. Hey, if you're really Messiah, get off the cross, save yourself, save us. Didn't matter how much they taunted him. He wasn't gonna come off that cross that day because he was on a mission to save a really messed up kid named Rick Countryman. Jesus said this about himself in Luke chapter 19. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save those who are lost. I was lost. I never would have said it that way, but man, I was lost. 
I was one goofed up person, man. I can identify with the mockers. I, I used to mock God. I used to mock Christians. I, I used to just make fun of those who would go to church. I was so deceived and so confused. Jesus basically said the same thing about himself in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 20. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Beloved, it didn't matter how much all of these people were taunting him to come off of the cross. He wasn't going to do it. He had no intention of coming off the cross. He had already proved that he was the Son of God by his teachings. He had already proved that he was the Son of God by all the miracles he did. He didn't need to prove who he was once again. He was on that cross giving his life up for me. <laughs> now let me tell you why this first word, this word of forgiveness is such an important word. It's important because we all have to deal with this thing called guilt, all of us. Doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Mormon or a Hindu or an atheist. Doesn't matter what you are, all of us have to deal with this thing called guilt, regardless of what you believe in. And the reason why we all have to deal with guilt is because everybody's blown it. Everybody. Before I ever gave my life to Christ, listen, I felt guilt. Doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, you still feel guilt. You can be a Muslim, you feel guilt. You can be a Buddhist, you feel guilt. You can be an atheist and you feel guilt. All of us have to deal with it. We've all made mistakes. We've all done things that we know are wrong or things that we you know, said that were wrong or things that we used to think about or think about now that we just know are wrong. No one had to tell me you know, I was sinful I, when I was younger. I, I wouldn't have called it sin. That's a biblical word. But I knew I was doing wrong things. My conscience was alive and well. Nobody's perfect. The Bible says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has sinned. And because we've all sinned, we all experience guilt in our lives. You see, God created human beings way different than anything else, way different than animals. God gave human beings a soul. God gave humans a, a conscience. He gave humans the ability to know what's right and what's wrong. He gave us all the ability to make judgments about that. Let me ask, how many would make the judgment that what happened to that police officer the other day was wrong. Raise your hand. Make a judgment. Was it wrong? Absolutely it was wrong. Now, who wants to stand up and say, no, I, I, I don't judge. I don't do that. 
Nobody. Everybody knows that was wrong. Everybody. It's just crazy to say, you know what? We do, we, we're not to make any judgments about things. <laughs> and the reason why people say that is because once you make a judgment about something, you've got to deal with stuff that's right and wrong. Everybody knows what's right and what's wrong. We all do. I had a guy last night who came up to me and he said, oh, I just want you to know, I think all religions are, are right. And I said, I want you to, that's one of the most idiotic statements anybody could ever make. He said, well, what are you talking about? I said, it's just intellectually not honest. If you said, I think all religions are wrong, I understand that. All religions could be wrong, but we can't all be right. I believe some people will die and spend their eternity in heaven. I think some people will die and spend their eternity in hell. There are somebody, some people who believe that everybody just goes to heaven. There are some people that believe that when you die, you just go into a pine box and that's the end of your life. There are some people who believe that when you die, you, you're reincarnated as a goat or a cow or a beetle, depending on how good you live. We can't all be right, but we can't all be wrong. But see, they don't want to make any judgments. Though, just by the virtue of the fact that they came to me and told me what they believed tells me they just made a judgment about what I believe. <laughs> the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 20, the Lord gave us mind and conscience. We cannot hide from ourselves. You see, Guilt is a uniquely human emotion. He gave us the ability to know what's right, and he gave us the ability to know what's wrong. One version says, the, light, the Lord's light penetrates the human spirit, exposing every hidden motive. Now, I want to... I want to bore down on this, and you really got to put your thinking caps on. I really want you to think here. This is important, this whole idea of conscience. Paul says this in Romans chapter 2. He said, indeed, when the Gentiles, those who aren't Jewish, who do not have the law, do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Now, some of you are going, okay, what's, what's Paul saying there? Basically, Paul is saying that you don't have to know what the Bible says to be held responsible for your sins, because you have God's law written upon your heart. It's called your conscience. In other words, God doesn't let you off the hook just because you know, you know nothing about the Bible. Well, how did I know I was sinful? Because your conscience told you you were sinful. Your conscience let you know what you were doing was wrong. It let you know what you were doing was right. I never once had a class growing up, went to Fremont Elementary School, went to Roosevelt Junior High, went to Grace M. Davis High School, never once did I ever have a class called Don't Murder 101. I never, I can't, a teacher never had to tell me not to kill anybody. 
I just knew it was wrong. Nobody had, nobody had to sit me down and say, uh, little Ricky, let me tell you something. Lying's wrong. Never had to tell me that. I just knew it was wrong. Nobody had to tell me that stealing was wrong. Those were all part of the Ten Commandments. They were just written on my heart. My conscience told me they were wrong. Nobody had to tell me, you know, that sleeping with somebody that isn't my wife is wrong. I know it's wrong. It's wrong. My conscience bears witness to the fact that I'm sinful. Your conscience tells you that you have sinned, that you have fallen short of God's standard. You know what is right and what is wrong. You know it. God so loves you and cares about you, he gave you a conscience that you would know, ooh, what I'm doing is wrong. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Buddhist or an atheist or you're a Christian, we all have to deal with this thing called our conscience, a guilt, all of us. We all deal with it. I know a lot of unbelievers who are honest businessmen. I know a lot of unbelievers who are faithful to their spouse. They love their children. They, they honor their parents. They, they, they understand that lying is wrong. They're, they're generous you know, to those in need. They care deeply about people. And the reason they know to do these good things is because somewhere within their soul, they know they're supposed to do these things. It doesn't matter whether, you know, what you believe. If you're driving down the road and you see an older lady with her car, you know, broken down, pushing her to the side of the road, you just know. I got to pull over and help her, don't you? How do you just know that? Your conscience tells you to do that. But on the other side of the coin, people know that murder's wrong, stealing's wrong, adultery's wrong, lying's wrong, selling drugs is wrong. Why? Because it's been written upon their hearts. Mankind understands the, the idea of ethics. We understand that. Let me give you an illustration, and I want you to pay really close attention. Most people live outside of jails. Most people live outside of, of prisons. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that mankind is basically good? I mean, most people are free. Most people don't live in prisons. Most people don't live in jails. Does that prove that mankind is basically good? No. The Bible teaches that mankind is basically bad. People are sinful, we're evil, we're wicked. Ever since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter three, mankind has been in a downward, you know, downward spiral. But there is within the soul of mankind a, a sense of rightness that keeps him from being as bad as he could be. That's your conscience. You see, the Bible teaches we're all sinful, we're all, we're all evil, we're all goofed up, we're all bad, and it's our conscience that keeps us from being as bad as we could be. 
You ever been driving down the road and somebody cuts you off and every cell in your body wants to go bam and ram the back of them? But you don't do it, why? Because you have a conscience. Your conscience is keeping you from being as bad as you could be and you know that that's wrong and so you let off the, the gas. What I just shared with you is a biblical worldview of things. And it's weighty. It's weighty. And some of you got to get that ingrained down in you. That you would understand what the Bible has to say about all of us. And how much God loves us that he would give us a conscience to know what's good and what's right. And to know what's bad and what's evil, you see. Now, one of the things about guilt, if it's not dealt with, is that it's an incredibly destructive um, emotion or feeling. It can literally cause physical illness. Some people are literally tortured by their guilt. Some of you are here or maybe over in the venue. And, and literally, something you did in your past just tortures you. A lot of people are slaves to regrets, they're slaves to shame, they're, they're slaves to things they can't get out of their, their minds, or they're so stuck in the past, guilt you know, from their past that they can't even begin to think about what God would have for them today. Beloved, guilt, if not dealt with, is incredibly destructive. Listen to what King David said in Psalm 38. He said this, my guilt overwhelms me. It's a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and stink because of my foolish sins. I am bent over and racked with pain all day long. I walk around filled with grief. And let me tell you something, I read that and I thought to myself, I could have written that on a number of occasions. I could have written that on a number of occasions even being a believer. Guilt, if it's not dealt with, can just be destructive. Last year I told you that, that guilt is like a warning light. It's a, a warning light that says that there's something wrong in your life. It's a warning light that says that there's something that needs to be corrected in your life. It's like uh, the little light on my car, bing, goes on. It says, go change your oil. It says, problem with the oil. It's God's way of telling, that, telling you that you're on the wrong track, that you're doing something that's wrong. It's God's way of telling you, if you're an unbeliever, that you're sinful. That there are things in your life that are wrong. You're not following God's ways. You're not following God's path. Now, it's not something that's supposed to stay on in your life. It's a warning light. You correct what's wrong and the warning light goes off and then you get on with your life. God doesn't want his people running around with the warning light on, full of guilt. That, 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 that's not what God wants. It's not supposed to stay on. Now what's interesting is that we as humans have come up with all kinds of different ways to deal with guilt, to deal with a guilty conscience, to, to deal with the warning light and none of them work. Because we all experience guilt, it's amazing the things we do to try to somehow deal with it. Number one, 
to avoid guilt, people often project it onto somebody else. In other words, you blame somebody else. It's not my fault. You blame society, you blame your spouse, you blame your boss, you blame your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you blame your parents, you blame your teachers, you blame the church, you blame the environment, you blame the government. You project your guilt onto somebody else hoping that somehow the warning light will go off. And it might for a moment, but then ping, goes back on. This is exactly what Adam did when he sinned in the Garden of Eden. After Adam disobeyed God, God came to talk with him, and it says this in Genesis chapter three. The Lord God asked, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was a woman that you gave me. It's a woman, I'm telling you. And by the way, you're the one who gave her to me. If you hadn't given her to me, I wouldn't be in the place I'm in. He's blaming God. And then you get to Eve. Um, uh, it's the serpent. It's a serpent. Both Adam and Eve are blaming somebody else for their sin. They're trying to project their guilt onto somebody else. Proverbs chapter 19 says, people ruin their own lives by their own foolishness, and then they get angry at the Lord about it. I just can't believe God allowed this to happen to me. Why would God do this to me? I don't know. You're the one who got drunk, got in your car, and wrecked it. Don't blame God for your foolishness. You want to talk about blasphemy? Unbelievable what we'll do to try to somehow deal with the guilt in our lives. We'll get so low, we'll blame God for it. Number two, to avoid guilt, people often try to bury it. This is where you stuff it down, you push it down into your subconscious, you, you try to live in denial. I know that I did was wrong, but I just don't wanna think about it, so you push it down, but it doesn't work, does it? It's amazing how your past always has a way of resurrecting itself. Either you dig it up, or somebody else does. Amazing how somebody else will dig up your past and remind you of your sin. Spouses are pretty good at that. <laughs> Numbers 32 says, and you may be sure that your sins will find you out. I don't care how far you got them buried, they're gonna find you out. And let me tell you something. In the generation that we live in with the internet, every picture you take and post, every dumb little thing that you say and post is there forever. It's gone global and it will never go away. It can always be dug up, always. Well, I, I hit delete, Pastor. And you can hit delete all day long, but it doesn't go away. Listen to me, young people, listen. In your immaturity, you are putting pictures on the World Wide Web, worldwide. Worldwide web. You're posting comments in your immaturity and they're there forever. And when you get older, try to get a job, trying to marry somebody, you have your own children, bing, there it is. Your sins will find you out. 
Number three, to avoid guilt, people often try to rationalize it. In other words, you make up excuses. Well, it's no big deal what I did. I didn't really hurt anybody. You know, no harm, no foul. We rationalize, we, we, we justify, we make up excuses. Number four, to avoid guilt, people often compare themselves to others. In other words, they think to themselves, well, at least I'm not as bad as Hitler. In fact, now I think about it, I've never killed anybody. I'm pretty good. I'm not crummy like that Scott Peterson guy. Now, that's a crummy guy. I, I can understand him having guilt in his life, right? This one's probably the one that a lot of people go to right here. You think that if your sins aren't as bad as somebody other, you know, some other person's sins, then you're okay. The Bible says in Romans chapter three, and I've said it a couple times, for everyone has sinned, and everybody has fallen short of Rick Countryman's standard. I doesn't say that. If it said that, you're all good. I, all of you, but I ain't the standard. You can compare yourself to anybody you want. The standard is God. And when you compare yourself to God, bing, the warning light's on. Then go off. Number five, to avoid guilt, people often you know, try to keep themselves busy and distracted. In other words, you, you never slow down long enough to think about your guilt. You rush from one thing to another, one activity to another. It's go, 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 do, 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 and then you go to bed as fast as you can trying to go to sleep before the, those, you know, guilty, crummy thoughts start filling your mind and haunting you again. Guilt is one of the primary causes of workaholism. A lot of workaholics are simply running from something that they know is wrong in their lives. They're just, I'll just get busy and do this and I'll take up this hobby and I'll do this. And you just get home and it's like, I gotta go to bed. Because there's something going on. The warning light is on in your life. Number six, to avoid guilt, people often try to escape. You know, you pop a pill, you have a drink, you smoke a joint, you watch TV, go to Disneyland, take up a sport, anything, anything to escape the crummy feelings that guilt brings on. And by the way, let me tell you where I got this list, and there's others. <laughs> I've done them all. This is just my list. These are all the things that I've done every one of them, to try to deal with the guilt in my life. And by the way, sometimes I've done some of these even as a pastor. The warning light has gone on and I know, I, I know what I did. I didn't love somebody the way God had called me to love them. I didn't care about somebody the way I was supposed to care about them. I, I used harsh language with, you know, one of my staff or somebody. I, I just... I just didn't do what was right. I saw the old, the old gal pushing her car off to the side of the road and drove by and, well, I'm busy, you know, doing the Lord's work. I'm busy about the Father's business, don't have time to do that, you know. Get around the corner and you're driving away and now you just, well, bang, turn on the radio, bang, fill my mind with, Music, anything. Just I, I knew I, I knew I fumbled. I knew it. 
Listen, no matter how hard you try to project your guilt onto somebody else or bury it or rationalize it or compare yourself to somebody else or stay busy, distracted, or try to escape or whatever, it doesn't work. The fact is the warning light goes on. So what's the solution? How do you turn the warning light off? Some of you are wondering if it's even possible to get rid of the guilt that you feel. You've carried it around so long. And the answer is yes. Yes, it's possible to get rid of guilt. And the reason it's possible is because of the very first word that Jesus spoke on the cross, the word forgiveness. Beloved, if you'll stick with me for just a a few minutes and apply what I'm gonna share, there's not a person in this room who needs to walk out of here with a guilty conscience. Nobody. All of you literally could leave here just free from guilt. So I'm gonna share with you three things that are, that are pretty simple, but they're extremely difficult. Step number one, you must admit to your sin. <laughs> Beloved, the starting point of living a guilt-free life is you've gotta to admit to your sin. You don't bury it, you don't project it onto somebody else, you don't try to you know, escape from it or whatever, you simply own up to it, you admit it, you admit you, you sinned. You admit that you've made a mistake. You admit that you're wrong. You're a man about it. You're a woman about it. And you simply admit to the fact that you've sinned, that you've done something wrong. Remember what Proverbs 20 says, the Lord gave us a mind, he gave us a conscience, and we can't hide from ourselves. Beloved, you can hide your sin from me. You just can't hide it from you, can you? I may not know that the warning light is off on your life, but you know. That's why it starts with personal honesty. If you want to turn the warning light off, you've got to admit to yourself and admit to God that you were wrong. The Bible says this in John chapter 1, if we claim that we have no sin, if we claim that we've never felt guilt, if we claim that we've never done anything that we're ashamed of, if we claim that we don't have any regrets, if we claim that we have not sinned, you're only fooling yourselves. And the truth is not in you. Beloved, we as human beings have the amazing ability to lie to ourselves. In fact, I often say that I think humans are the only thing that God ever created that has the ability to deceive itself. You'll never see a dog that's really overweight, you know, walk up to the Alpo and go, oh, yeah, I better lay off the Po. I'm getting a little heavy. I don't do that. I don't know. What do they know? They just eat. We do it. We can look in the mirror and go, oh, man, I, man, I know. I'm, I'm not, this is not a healthy way for me to live. I, I got to lose some weight, you know, whatever. Dogs don't do that. There are basically two kinds of people in the world. People who are broken and sinful and know it, and people who are broken and sinful and won't admit it. You see, you're in one of those two camps. Your conscience has already told you you've done things that are wrong. You know, everybody knows they're sinful, they're broken, they're messed up. And they admit it. Or you know you're sinful and broken, but you won't admit it. You're in one of those two places. 
The reason why I know you're in one of those two places is because of our conscience. Your conscience has already told you you're guilty. You're guilty. The starting point of getting the warning light off is simply just admit it. Admit it. Admit that you're broken. Admit that you're sinful. Listen to what Lamentations chapter 3 says. Let us examine and see what we have done, and then let us return to the Lord. And the thought there is, is that if you really examine your own life, <laughs> if you really take a, an inventory of your life, you'll go, hey, 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 I am messed up. i got to return to the Lord. The problem is, is we stay busy, we're doing stuff, we're projecting, we're popping, we're doing anything to really examine our lives. Step number two, and this is going to get tougher right here. You must accept responsibility for your sin. Getting rid of your guilt starts with honesty, admitting, you know, to your sin. Then you got to take responsibility for it. King David, who, had, who was Israel's greatest king by far, had committed adultery with a gal by the name of Bathsheba, which meant that the warning light was off in his light, right? Well, listen to what he wrote in Psalms 51. He said, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sin, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. That's his conscience. Against you and you only have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. Beloved, this is a prayer of repentance. And did you notice? Nowhere in it does he mention Bathsheba. He doesn't say, oh God, I have sinned. Oh, cleanse me of my sin. And by the way, deal with her. She's such a loser. She was flirtatious. She's got all this junk in her life. Was she guilty? Yeah. Takes two to tango. But you want that warning light of guilt to go off. You've got to admit your sin, and then you've got to take responsibility for your sin. Don't worry about the other person. Don't worry about all the junk in their life and all the stuff they may need to repent of. It's amazing how many times when we go before God and repent of our sins, even in our repentance we're blaming other people. That's not taking responsibility for your sin, for your life. Look, Psalms 51 is, is a great psalm to pray, maybe for some of you today. I, I can't tell you how many times I've opened up my Bible and I've just prayed that. My conscience is just killing me, the warning light's on, I've just... I don't know, you know, there's so many times, I can't even count how, you know. And sometimes I'll just open up Psalm 51 and I'll just read that. And God sees my heart. I'm admitting that I'm a sinful person and I'm just, I'm, I'm taking responsibility for it. 
Beloved, if you want the warning light of guilt to go off in your life, you've got to take responsibility for your sin just like David's doing here. And by the way, the warning light can go off and you still have to face the consequences of your sin. You know, if you go out and you're drinking and you get pulled over and you get a DUI, you're probably going to lose your license. You're probably going to, your insurance rates are going to go up, all that kind of stuff. You don't have to feel the guilt of it anymore, but the consequences still go on. Does that make sense? I'm talking about the warning light of guilt going off in your life and how to get it off. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a, a really special story. He said this in verse 9, and I've read this story, I don't know, four or five times this week, and I've just really enjoyed it. Verse 9 says, then Jesus told the story to some that had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Jesus said, two men went to the temple, to the church to pray. One was a Pharisee, a religious leader, and the other was a despised tax collector. And, and in that culture, what that phrase means is that they were just a horrible sinner. Okay? The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. <laughs> For I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery, and I'm certainly not like that tax guy over there. I'm not like that guy. I'm not as bad as that person. Look at that crummy soul. I ain't like them. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Not pointing out everybody else's sin. Not dealing with, you know, his spouse's sin, his kid's sin, you know. Not blaming his parents for his crummy upbringing, you know. He's just dealing with his own life. Jesus says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. It was the sinner whose warning light went off. Because here he is admitting his sin and he's taking responsibility for it before God. Now let me tell you how you know you're taking responsibility for your sin. And this is going to be difficult. Here's how you'll know, is you'll tell somebody else about it. James says this in James chapter 5. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, it doesn't say that you need to confess your sins to a friend to be forgiven. But something unique happens, something special happens, healing happens, when you as a man get together with one other guy, and you got to use some wisdom here. It doesn't say get up in front of the church and share your sins. <laughs> but you find a, guys with guys, gals with gals, men, you find another man, mature man, and you sit down with them and just say, hey, listen, I need to tell you about some sin in my life. And I've admitted it, and I'm, I'm, I've confessed it to God, but I need you to know about it. Would you pray for me? Wow. Ladies, you need to have another godly woman that you would sit down with and say, listen, I've got some sin in my life and 
been wrestling around with it, and I've admitted it. I'm taking responsibility for it, and I, need, I want you to know. And I'm, would you pray for me? Something happens when you're just honest about your sin. As long as you keep it inside in here, man, it's kind of still in the dark, man. The enemy can just eat you alive with it. But once you come out into the light with it with somebody, wow, there's freedom in that. Now, you got to use some wisdom. You just don't want to get together with anybody. You know, those people can go shoot their mouths off. But you find a godly brother, men. Ladies, you find a godly sister that you can share it with. And step number three, after you admitted it, after you've taken responsibility for it, you got to ask God then to forgive you for it. The Bible says in John chapter one, but if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, he'll forgive us and turn the warning light off. That's what the cross was about. That's what the first word of the cross was about. This is one of the great promises in all of the, the Bible. The Bible says over and over again that God will forgive you of your sin if you'll ask him to. Now there's a right way and a wrong way to ask for forgiveness. Let me give you the wrong way. You don't have to beg God to forgive you. You don't have to somehow, you know, try to convince God to forgive you. You don't have to, you know, somehow give God a good argument as to why he should forgive you. You don't have to bargain with God to forgive you. You know, God, if you'll forgive me, you know, I'll never do this sin again. Because you'll do it again. I mean, you're going to do it again. You don't have to bribe God to forgive you. God, if you'll forgive me, you know, of this sin, I promise I'll go to church every week. God, if you'll forgive me of this sin, I promise I'll go on a missions trip. God, if you'll forgive me of this sin, I promise I'll give 10%. No, no, make it 15. No, 20. 20% of my income if you'll just forgive me. You don't have to do that. Listen to me carefully. God wants to forgive you more than you want to ask for it. When he hung on that cross, I didn't care about God. He hung on that cross while I was yet a sinner. I was a mocker. And there he was, longing for me to give my life to him, longing that I would come to him for forgiveness. He gave me a conscience that would be a constant reminder to me of my sin, a constant reminder to me that I needed his forgiveness in my life. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 86, Oh, Lord, you are so good. You are so ready to forgive. Let me tell you something. God's ready to forgive. He's ready to forgive you right now. He's always ready to forgive you. Always. Don't you ever think that somehow, you know, you're bothering God by coming to him and asking for forgiveness. Are you kidding me? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, down here to die for you. You're not bothering him when you go to him and ask him for forgiveness. Nehemiah chapter 9 says they refused to obey and didn't pay attention to the miracles you did for them. Instead, they rebelled and appointed a leader to take them back into slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, always ready to pardon. 
He's always ready. He's ready right now to turn the warning light off. He's ready right now. Now understand that confession doesn't change the future. Confession forgives the past. There are steps to change a bad habit. And I, I'm not talking about those steps today. Those are principles of recovery. I'm talking about closing the door on, on your past. Just because you admit, you, you, you can't say, God, I admit that I'm going to sin tomorrow, and I'll take responsibility for whatever that sin is, and God, would you forgive me of that sin, whatever it is tomorrow? No, that's not how it works. You admit to the sins of your past. You take responsibility for that sin, and you ask God to forgive you of that sin. Confession is about the past. Confession doesn't mean that you're never going to do it again. You will do it again. I guarantee it. Confession forgives you and cleanses you from the past. It turns the, the warning light off. Let me, let me tell you what Isaiah 55 says, and I'll wrap it up with this. Isaiah 55 says, let the wicked leave their way of life and change their way of thinking. Let them turn to the Lord, our God. He is merciful and he's quick to forgive. Listen to me. When you come to God and you say, oh God, I've blown it, I've sinned, I'm, I'm, I'm taking responsibility for it, would you forgive me? God doesn't go, hold on here a second there, fella. Let me get together with, you know, the Son and the Holy Spirit and we'll have a little staff meeting. And we'll take a look at your sin. We'll get back to you next Tuesday. We gotta think this one through for a moment. Now, human beings do that, but God doesn't do that. When you go to God and you ask him for forgiveness, he's quick to forgive. He's quick. In Psalms 19, it says, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? I want you to think about that. I read that this week and I went, ooh, lurking in my heart. I mean, there's this idea that there are these sins that are just in the shadows. They're just lurking in our lives. Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant free from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me, then I'll be free from guilt. And I began to think, you know, I, I've never, till this week when I was kind of reading that, ever gone to the Lord and said, God, you know what, I got all these sins that are kind of lurking in my life. I don't even know what they are. But would you forgive me from them? I'm always very cognitive of the sins that I do do, the deliberate <laughs> sins. But here is this idea that there's all these sins in my life that in my humanity, I, I can't even, I don't even see, I don't even recognize them. They're just there and they're constantly coming out. And here, you know, we've got the psalmist saying, cleanse me, God, from these hidden ones that I don't even know about. You know, one of the beautiful things about this first word is that God says, listen, I can turn the warning light of guilt off in your life. I can cleanse you from that sin, that thing that was wrong in your life. And he can do it right now. 
In fact, whether you're over in the venue or in here, why don't you guys just shut your eyes for just a moment. And Pastor Scott's going to come and pray, but before he prays, I just, I just want your eyes closed for, for just a moment. And I don't know what the stuff is in your life is, Christian. But maybe God was really pounding you through your conscience this morning about some sin that you've never admitted to. You've never taken responsibility for. And you never confessed to. Maybe, maybe this is the moment where you just quietly say, God, man, I... I want you to turn the warning light off. For some of you, you're here and you've never given your life to the Lord. Your conscience has told you throughout the years that you're sinful, that you've done wrong things. And that was God's way of loving you, telling you that you're apart from him. Today, here you are, and you heard this message, and maybe for you, it's you need to invite Jesus into your life to cleanse you of all of your sin, that the relationship between you and God can be made whole again. I don't know what your decision is in here or over in the venue, but we have a place called the altar room. There's one over in the venue, and there's one in here. And it's a place where some of our spiritual leaders gather. And we're there to pray for you, to listen to you, to, to be a blessing to you, to be a resource to you. The spiritual leaders of this church, um, we've been through a lot. We understand sin. Our warning lights have been off a few times, trust me. We'll understand and let us be a blessing to you. Let us pray with you. Let us give you a little bit of advice. Let us encourage you. Maybe you're here and your marriage has gone sideways. Come in and just say, hey, my marriage is messed up. Would you pray for me? Maybe you're here and your teenager's gone sideways or your, I don't know, your dad's gone sideways. Would you come in and just let us pray for you? Maybe you've got a health challenge. Let us pray. The preaching's done, but God ain't done. He's working in some of your lives. Take advantage of our spiritual leaders. They're, they're good. They're good people, good men, good women who love Jesus and care about you deeply. Pastor Scott, would you close our time?